0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Guinean President Alpha Conde is mulling a third presidential term. Will the international community support the overwhelming number of Guineans who oppose term extensions? Ghana will have an election rematch in 2020. President Nana Kufa-Addo will face former President John Mahama. What does this tell us about the health of Ghana's democracy? Plus, we discuss Afrobarometer polling, its unique insights, and why U.S. decision makers should integrate it into the policy process. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Guinea's President Alpha Conde is flirting with a third term in office, threatening to dent his country's democratic credentials.
1: Now, the main Guinean opposition parties and civil society groups have announced the creation of a coalition to prevent President Alpha Conde from seeking a third term in 2020. President Conde, Conde who,
0: is who is 81 years old, was a longtime opposition leader and then took power in 2010 after decades of autocratic and military rule in Guinea. Joining me to discuss this risk of democratic backsliding is Professor Jima Bodhi, who is the Executive Director of Afrobarometer, Dr. Christopher Fumagno who is the Senior Associate and Regional Director for Central and West Africa at the National Democratic Institute, also known as NDI, and Brittany Brown, Chief of Staff at the International Crisis Group. Before we dive into the political situation, I just want to make a couple of points about where we are on, on third terms in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in West Africa. I think a lot of us understand that there's been these term extensions elsewhere on the continent, but West Africa has been interesting because a number of times Paul. The public has blocked third terms attempts, whether that's in Nigeria or in Burkina Faso, or they voted down attempts in Senegal. And so it actually does have this really strong record of opposing third terms. In fact, only the president of Togo has been effective at manipulating the constitution to allow for terms. But that brings us to Guinea. So, Chris, can you kind of tell us a little bit about this context uh, in West Africa and then what's at play in Guinea?
1: Well, right now, uh, Guinea is one of those countries uh, that went through a transition about 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, and at the time, uh, people really celebrated the fact that this country that had been ruled by two autocrats uh, since its independence in uh, 1957, that this country was on the democratic path. And despite its uh, heritage, its legacy, uh, that the potential was there for Guinea to really become a democratic country and to utilize the resources that it has for the benefit of its uh, citizens. And so the elections in the past have been um, difficult, have been contentious, sometimes violent, uh, but they've been better than the era when there were no elections at all. And so people took that and hoped that when the new president who was elected in 2010, uh, would have served his first term, got re-elected, and would have served his second and what ought to be the last term, uh, that the country would have a peaceful transition uh, and an opportunity to renew its leadership. Uh, unfortunately, as we're getting close to 2020, um, there's now a lot of speculation that uh, the president may want to sit tied, that he may be looking for ways to amend the constitution or rewrite the constitution of the country, Uh, to give himself another mandate. And that would be most unfortunate uh, because it would raise the possibility that there could be uh, a rollback of some of the gains that uh, Guinea's made in recent years.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, This is so problematic. Alpha Conde has so much to be proud of, as you said, making this transition, uh, what he did to deal with the Ebola outbreak. And yet he's falling to this trap, right? He thinks he's indispensable. And while he hasn't said yes or no if he's going to go for it, I mean, all indications look like he is very interested. And and he's used this shortcut that lots of African leaders say. is like, well, it depends on the will of the people. But here's the good news. We actually know what the will of the people is, right? Jima, you've done polling on how Guineans think about third terms. What's the answer?
2: Guinea is one of the countries where citizens overwhelmingly prefer to have limits to presidential tenure. In fact, in the last, in the most recent survey, as many as 82% of the adult population expressed support for term limits. To my mind, President Conde is risking a real popular backlash, probably going to throw the country into some kind of chaos, and that alone should Yeah.
0: And I think we've already seen it, right? We've seen a couple of the opposition already go onto the streets. We've seen a couple of clashes. Our listeners may think that, well, what's the harm in having a referendum, you know, then they'll just vote it down. But the reality is that Guinea hasn't had perfect elections. Chris, how bad can this get? Do you agree with Jima?
1: Yes, I agree with uh, Jima because uh, Guinea has a history of violent elections and even when the elections have been local elections, in the last local elections, a lot of people died over the electoral outcome. There's also statistics that uh, just in May confrontations between civilian populations and security services, uh, since Conde came to power, over 100 people have died uh, during demonstrations. Mm-hmm. And so that's a track record. Uh, we're also seeing that uh, groups are beginning to mobilize themselves. Uh, should the issue come to the fore, that they would fight it out.
0: Right, The paradox here is that Conde, when he was in opposition, opposed his predecessor's efforts to extend his term. And now, you know, on all all accounts looks like he's going to do exactly the same thing that history is repeating itself in the worst way. So we know, that 82% of the population opposes third terms. We've already seen people agitate and go on the street on this. The former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Guinea, Dennis Hankins, had talked about there was no appetite for this, but I haven't heard the current ambassador say anything. I haven't heard the assistant secretary, who was formerly an ambassador to Guinea, say anything. Not sure the French have said anything. The only people who are saying anything are the Russians. And guess where they are? They're supportive.
3: I think that before we talk about Russia, it's important to sort of understand, you know, Guinea is the largest producer of um, bauxite. And I think that matters a lot when you're talking about Russia or any outside country that has economic interests. So um, bauxite, for those of you who don't know, is a mineral that's used for making aluminum. And... It's one of Guinea's sole lucrative activities, and President Conde, back in April of this year, assumed control over the two state mining companies of bauxite. And the reason this becomes very important, of course, is that Russia has economic interests, and you know you, we've seen um, Rusal, the major mining company, um, Russian mining company, opened up a new mine in 2018. You know, Russia is not the only country, of course, that's interested. China also um, receives more than half of their um, bauxite for aluminum from Guinea. So you start to see a lot of um, different countries have different interests. Um, So that's one reason, right, that you're going to see Russia being interested in Conde staying in power. The other reason is, you know, sometimes people talk about it, about Russia looking to just kind of annoy the West. But I don't think it's quite that simple. I think it's more about uh, Russia being opportunistic when it comes to the continent and specifically looking for, you know, easy wins um, and easy ways to gain credibility on the continent. So I think it's probably no surprise that we would see Russia be supportive for, you know, those two reasons. When it comes to the international community and why we're not seeing more people stand up, I think that, you know, folks reflect on the Obama administration and really the last decade or so. And there is a there is some resentment coming from the continent of, you know, finger wagging. And so I guess it's not a surprise. I think that, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about it later. But what's really important is that it means that civil society and the four of us talking about this today is what becomes really important. Because if we're not going to be hearing it from Western leaders, we're not going to be hearing it from the United States.
0: But do we have, I mean, we have an ally for those of us who care about this issue and think it's important for Guinea's stability and dem- democratic trajectory. We have an ally in ECOWAS, or at least we have. What what can we look to the region on this issue? Quickly
1: on ECOWAS, I think the stars may not be that well aligned because the chairman of ECOWAS right now is Nigeria, and President Buhari is not very assertive on in terms of foreign policy in the in the subregion. Uh, I think many would wish and hope that he uh, Nigeria has um, asserted more leadership on this issue, as it's done in some cases in the past. No, I think that's right.
0: Let's shift to to Ghana. We're going to take advantage of Jima being here. Uh, Elections aren't until 2020 in Ghana, but we already know it's a rematch. Current president, uh, Nana Kufa-Addo of the MPP versus the former president, John Mahama of the NDC.
1: Former president John Mahama has indicated interest in governing the country once again. He announced this beat on Thursday to seek the nomination of the main uh, opposition party and contest uh, the 2020 election.
0: Mahama- I'd love to hear from you, Jima. Who are these two candidates? Kufato defeated Muhammad by a million votes. Why is he back in the race?
2: Well, I think uh, former President Mahama is back in the race, and his presence in the race was inevitable because in many ways he represents a safe bet, the safest bet, for the NDC, he has strong name and facial recognition. He is an experienced politician. He most likely has the, a formidable financial war chest for the race and then a fairly up-to-date campaign infrastructure. And none of the, internal comp, you know, the competitors in the internal competition uh, for, the, for the presidential candidacy had any chance of besting him. So I think that's to be expected. Plus, I think it's a selection to me, speak to the NDC's desperation to return to power. And along with that, huge discomfort with being out of power. And that is not unique to the NDC. I think both the um, NDC and the MPP have all demonstrated that there's nothing worse for them than being out of power. And, and that, once you've tasted it, you always want to have it. Unfortunately for the NDC, I think Mohammed's selection also means the party literally has decided to go for broke mm-hmm. in the 2020 elections, even if it comes at the risk of having now to identify and prepare a fresh face for the 2024 20, uh, presidential race. You know, because so far, and, and that. The, for Ghana, I think the idea of every president, every party getting its fair crack at two terms is fairly sunk in
0: into the public psyche. Chris, what do you think? Is it is it significant? And what does it tell us about the health of Ghana's democracy? Does it matter?
1: Well, it matters. Let me start with the health of Ghana's democracy, because for many Africans, really, Ghana has become the um, consolation prize, the, the place where we find solace in saying, oh, there's still a number of countries where democracy is thriving. And with cite Ghana and Botswana and Mauritius and maybe a few others. My hope is that this country that uh, seems to be doing pretty well on alternation of political power between uh, two main political parties uh, would continue to, you know, lead by example uh, for the rest of the African continent.
0: There has recently some exposés about the ruling party um, using and hiring militias. Jima, your former organization, CDD, has highlighted this problem in the past. Like, How concerned should we be about the use of militias uh, as, as we get closer to the election?
2: The mobilization of militant and aggressive so-called party food soldiers and vigilantes has been a major feature of Ghanaian Politics and contestation for power between the MPP and the NDC uh, for much of the Fourth Republic. This has been going on for a long time. It's become part and parcel of the political play between the two. And so the MPP has, um, with the Kufwadu in opposition, has it, had a group called Invisible Forces, and Delta Force, and Bamba Boys, and others. Then the NDC and has Azoka Boys, Kandahar Boys, and now the Hawks. It's become part of the political game between the two parties. But what's important is for us to look at the incentives at work mm-hmm. for them, you know, that. In terms of why is it why is it that they want to use fair and foul means to win elections? They want to do so because if you win the presidential polls, especially, it gives you control over the the economic and bureaucratic as well as symbolic and social resources that are reposed at the center of the state that are in the control of the government, and then it gives you the opportunity now to. Dispense patronage downwards to your, your followers, including those who provided the wherewithal for you to physically, essentially protect your vote.
0: So this is what I struggle with. It's not the first time I've said it on the podcast, but the U.S. government loves to pick winners and losers. Who are our democracy darlings and who are the countries that we're going to kick around? And so whether it's Senegal and some of the, the disturbing things that happened ahead of that election, or I think... Uh, History as you put out Jima of using private militias. I think that there's this hesitancy to say well Ghana has these bumps and these you know, these these real black marks on its democratic uh, the way the polity sort of behaves and Brittany How do you how do we balance this right like shouldn't we be able to say like it's not perfect our democracy is not perfect Your democracy is not perfect, but we end up not wanting to do that because we love The good country right like so what do you think about this
3: i think you're totally right i think this goes back to this idea of that the u.s government always sort of walks this fine line of not wanting to just constantly be, you know, patronizing or telling countries exactly how they're supposed to have a democracy. I think we all recognize that democracies are uh, great for all of the reasons that we've all talked about. And everything we all know, whether it's a pressure valve that these elections can offer for, you know, after two terms or eight years or 10 years of power, this is a pressure valve for the opposition to get a chance to have a, you know, to express their will. I think that the, the struggle is that folks want to continue to have something to aim for. And so the United States wants to be able to say, no, look, Look, you can do it like Ghana, and if they start to po- like point out all the problems with, you know, maybe the imperfect uh, the imperfect democracy, just like the imperfect democracy in the United States, they're afraid then that they won't have any, you know, a like to stand on. Not ideal, um, but I think it's the way we've always done it. I mean, I don't think we've ever done the, you know, been good at criticizing ourselves or criticizing, you know, uh, less than perfect democracies. And so it's kind of just the way it goes. But I mean, at the end of the day, I actually I believe that behind the scenes it is happening. No, lot. I agree.
0: I obviously yeah. I saw it myself. But Chris, NDI does a great job when you observe elections that you really give these much more balanced perspectives. So, you know, what should we be saying about the state of Ghana- Ghana's election? I, I, Ghana's democracy, excuse me.
1: I always put a very high premium on public diplomacy. It helps. Uh, it helps because it, it gives a lifeline uh, to the people on the ground who are putting their lives on the line on a daily basis to know that at least someone out there is acknowledging that their struggle is part of um, a, a global struggle for democracy and rights and liberties and the things, the values that we all care about. And sometimes that voice can also serve as a deterrent to the people who are trying to do the wrong thing, to realize that it's now in the public space, it's now in the public domain, and they ought to put their best foot forward. Uh, I would also say that uh, for Ghana, one of the, you know, talking about bright spots, one of the good things going for Ghana is that Ghana has got a very vibrant, and very sophisticated civil society.
0: Yeah, we know about these because the press reported exactly, on it.
1: Exactly, the The, the press would do their investigative journalism, they would put it out in the public space, civil society would talk about it, and that has a way of putting pressure on the politicians uh, to not you know, pull the country down. So it's, it's really been amazing to see how strong Ghanaian civil society has become in the past uh, two decades. And also, I will put a plug out for the Ghanaian police mm-hmm. this, and their, their ability to provide electoral security or security around the elections. And that in 2016, we had all these concerns about the militias. But because civil society was flagging this issue very early on, and the media was talking about it very early on, it allowed the police force, the Ghanaian police force, to be able to organize itself to perform professionally to kind of nip or, or or mute the impact of these uh, negative elements around the electoral period, so I think we should be you know making those noises right now and calling calling them out yeah, to I be agree. sure that uh, everyone uh, performs at their best to make sure the next elections don't go astray.
3: Um, I think it's it's actually much more important that it comes from civil society than coming from the United States well, or from any thing. Western no, country. this is right? my
0: thing that we should be investing as we do have in the past in civil society and media, and then our job. I think as a former government employee, my view is that we reinforce yeah. local voices. It's not very helpful for us, you know, in most cases, to be the only one saying it. But when whether it's Whatever we want to talk about that is problematic, when local voices say it, I think that the U.S. government can be better at enhancing that, reinforcing it. I want to shift us to our main topic today to discuss the role of polling in our policy process. Our listeners may have recalled in episode five, decoding the content, we talked about the use of data. We discussed budget and ACLID, and we gave a shout out to Afrobarometer. So I'm really excited that we have Jima here now to talk about Afrobarometer. It is a critically important resource for analysts, for academics, and for policymakers. So Jima, can you talk a little bit about what Afrobarometer does and maybe highlight some of the latest findings for us?
2: What's the alpha Barometer? Well, Afrobarometer asks everyday citizens in Africa about their views, their values, their preferences, and so on with regard to democracy, governance, the economy, and many related topics. We do this by using a nationally representative sample and face-to-face interviews. And we do the interviews in the language of the choice of the responder. We analyze the responses and disseminate our findings to policymakers, to policy advocates, to journalists and other researchers, and then indeed to the general public. And in the process, and over the course of some 20 years, we have built a pan African network of capable social science researchers, as well as uh, people who are able to move their research findings from, as it were, the confines of the think tank or the lab to the policy domain. All of our data, I'm happy to announce, and we always like to say uh, an analysis uh, available, free of charge to anyone who wants to use it. So we see it as a, a, a public good, a public resource and we are much happier when they are used we are much happier when they are consulted and uh, in our most recent round of surveys in 34 countries uh, spanning the whole continent we are seeing a number of findings and trends with important implications for the for, for the Africa interested policy community. And if you, you like, I'm happy to share some of that with you right here. So I spare you don't even have to go to, 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 to our yeah, website let's save,
0: let's save a click on, a, on the website. Go ahead.
2: Great. We, we like to start with what citizens identify as their priorities. Uh, what issues are on their mind that they wish their governments would address first and foremost? we find without doubt that job creation, which is also incidentally embodied in the sustainable development goals, is by far the top priority of Africans. You know, without any prompting, when you ask them to name the issue or problem that they really want government to address, jobs, 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 Um, and followed by health, and then, uh, followed by peace and justice and strong institutions, what we find interesting is that when you map government performance indicators onto these priorities, we see frequently that there are there is a mismatch between these policies, these problems that citizens want their governments to address and citizens' rating of the, per, of the performance and delivery of these goods to them as citizens. Again, in some instances, we find a great deal of mismatch between government budget priorities and external development assistance on the one hand versus citizen priorities. So where citizens are saying they want more health, you may find that government is spending more on defense. All eight priorities are on something else. When it comes to democracy, uh, we find that popular support for democracy remains strong. Uh, close to 70 percent of that pre- ex- precisely 68 percent of our respondents in the latest round said uh, don't express support for democracy, and they are especially supportive of specific aspects of accountable, responsive democratic governance. Um, We have been asking questions about whether people will will prefer a government that is effective but unaccountable versus one that is accountable, even if it's not as effective. And I think in the latest poll, 62% said they would prefer an accountable government to uh, the other alternative. Uh, When we started, I think it was about fifty-two or fifty percent. So, and it's been rising. So, uh, that for us says something about those who say that Africans don't care for uh, accountable governance, or they want is for government to be effective. Uh, That's not what we are finding. We also find, to our dismay, that citizens, confirming fears that some of us have, that the civic and political space is closing where citizens are confirming this and that, fewer Africans now say they feel free to say what they think, and those who say they are free to say whatever. In fact, for the first time since we started asking this particular question over a decade ago, uh, we find that it's only a minority of Africans that now support the media's right to publish without government, government interference. More and more, Africans are beginning to subscribe to or beginning to say that, well, if government wants to repress the media, maybe we can tolerate it. We need a lot more deeper analysis to know what to make of the decline in popular support for media freedoms in particular. And it's important to say that this does not detract or take anything away from continuing support of ordinary
0: Africans for democracy and for democratic governance. Jim, I'd like to bring uh, Chris and, and Brittany back in. I mean, it's clear that this is a rich resource and I, I really do appreciate um, what you are saying. Uh, there's some really in- important implications, but also needs to sort of dig more. But Chris, maybe your reaction to some of the results and how does NDI use this, this uh, Afrobarometer as a resource?
1: Sure. Let me say that I'm so elated uh, with Afrobarometer's work, and I'm a big fan, as, as Gima knows, because for the first time in a very long time, we're beginning to have data-driven making or policy debate and discussions. And this is something that Afrobarometer almost single-handedly put on the table uh, for the continent. Secondly, I would also say that probably without knowing, Afrobarometer is also breaking barriers on that continent because we still have African countries in which polling is illegal, is banned by law. And and I think the work that Afrobarometer is doing is also sending a very strong message that nobody gets harmed in giving citizens an opportunity to express their views and to have someone capture those views and put them back into the public space. So my hope is that as Afrobarometer continues to do its surveys and put them out, that invariably, even in some of the countries, uh, discussions would begin as to why there should be a ban on polling. Because I think if polling became an everyday exercise, that governments would perform better.
3: So when you have these things, it's it's about democracies and it's about, you know, making sure that you can win your next election. But it's really, at the end of the day, about making sure that they're prioritizing the same things that the people want to be prioritized so that, you know, the society can continue in a way that, you know, moving in a positive direction. The last
1: thing I would say also is that uh, on the media question, uh, I think... Africans are also caught up in global trends that will be impacted by fake news. yeah, fake news. and all of those things are also, you know because the continent is not in isolation. they're also having their impact and creating a lot of confusion in in, way, in how citizens are able to assimilate m- news through various media outlets. So I'm not very surprised with the question on media. Um, but I think that overall the trends as captured by Afrobarometer reflect what we're seeing on the continent, and NDI tries to integrate uh, some of these um, issues. We're we're a strong consumer of Afrobarometer reports, as you can imagine, and we try to integrate that into how we design and implement our programs across the continent.
0: You know, as a former analyst, Afrobarometer was a huge resource for me, but in my times in policy, I have to say that it was too infrequent where someone said, we're going to lean forward on this issue because we know through polling, through Alpha Barometer, that there's a strong will of the people on this. And I, I think that's a real problem because, as Chris said, we have to make data-driven decisions. But, I don't know, Brittany, you were at the NSC. You were at AID. Was that your experience?
3: Yeah, so I think, I mean, at USAID, we used Afrobarometer all the time. And I think you saw it both in Washington in the headquarters, but then also out in the field, you saw the teams um, working out um, in country using Afrobarometer to design what kind of programs we were going to put together, um, how we were going to ensure, you know, our monitoring and evaluation, looking at whether or not our programs were sustainable. So you saw USAID use it nonstop. And I think NDI has probably, you know, worked pretty closely with AID on some of that as well. Like when we're designing programs and figuring out how exactly to be successful in some of the programming that we were doing uh, at the White House. I think it's I think that Judd, you're absolutely right. It's a little bit harder sometimes for policymakers. I will say that we did actually use it when the Trump administration came in. So when you saw the the transition from um, President Obama to President Trump, we did use it because we needed data. I mean, that was the only thing that was really working with the new group that was coming in. Um, And we did have some people who weren't as familiar with the continent who had come in with the new administration. And so we had to use data. We saw that it was something that was really resonating with a, a few individuals specifically in the White House that really liked data. And so this was the opportunity to say, like, this actually matters to people on the continent. And of course, then what we would use is we would use that as the second of this is why we must invest in it, because you actually not only have the U.S. interest in mind, but you also have all these people in Africa who are showing that they are also interested in this idea or this, um, you know, general direction for U.S. policy.
2: Just a comment on that, uh, Brittany, if if you're done. First, of course, it's always gratifying to us to hear um, and to run into various U.S. officials and researchers and analysts who indicate to us that they have been using the data. Because as I said, you know that really makes us, we, we feel great when, when that happens. But I still think we, we, we do have a, a long way to go You know before it is used, Afrobarometer data is used more systematically and most important, acknowledged and materially and financially supported as an indispensable part of policy making. I mean, we're still, for for instance, we, 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 we've we decided to take advantage of the political opinion in Angola and to cover Angola in a survey. Uh, we have been running around for months. We haven't been able to raise a single cent for a single dollar for Angola.
0: It's one of the biggest economies in sub-Saharan Africa. It's under a remarkable transition. They're actually letting you in, and you don't have the funding for it. And we do have, we've identified
2: a great partner. So we're still committed to doing Angola, but the upshot is that if we do Angola, we may have to drop one of the other countries. And that's something that it's almost like being asked to kill one of your babies so
0: the other one will live. Yeah, I think the point is it's a free resources for researchers. In part because other organizations fund it, so this is a critical tool. I'd like to see us incorporate it more in our policymaking. I think Jima, the question is to to be clear about that. You know that we know these things because of Afrobarometer. We are adjusting our policy because of Afrobarometer. And then this opportunity in Angola is remarkable and should be taken advantage of. And I want to give you the last word because there's another opportunity that's really exciting, and that's Ethiopia. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's happening in Ethiopia? Sure.
2: Well, definitely, we are going to cover Ethiopia. We've struck a partnership with Freedom House, and so Freedom House will contribute financially to Ethiopia survey. We are particularly excited because Ethiopia is one of the few countries Actually, the only second country in our experience where the leadership has actually expressed a welcome, you know, have come in and said that, you know, we we we, we would love for you to uh, cover Ethiopia. And for us, it, that was a very interesting uh, development because we have, we've actually done Ethiopia before. In 2015 or so, and for around five, we covered Ethiopia. But... We haven't been publicizing that fact because we also found ourselves unable to effectively interpret some of the findings under the circumstances of the the prevailing circumstances at the time where there was so much state censorship. And we knew just by looking at some of the responses and comparing them, especially responses to questions that uh, were required opinion as opposed to statement of fact when you compared some of the responses to similar to countries in similar situations for which we had findings the ethiopian ones were a bit strange we are now happy to go back in because we know that given the new the change the changes that president prime minister Abiy has brought in uh, this is a country whose citizens are more likely to speak to us honestly and without looking over their shoulders.
3: That's fantastic. Yeah, we're going to be in a
0: place where uh, Prime Minister Abiy can make better decisions about what his population needs and the U.S. government and other stakeholders can make more informed decisions too. So I think it's wonderful. Jima, thank you so much for coming and and, and sharing uh, the latest results and helping to elevate what is such an important resource for all of us. Thank you, Brittany. And thank you, Chris.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa. Thanks.